let's say I'm supposed to bound up the stage, up the steps, I'm supposed to rub my hands and bellow. Beatifically. I'm glad I'm not supposed to say Jesus with four syllables instead of two. Jesus. Um, that's the other thing they typically like to say. I, I was, uh, it's, it's interesting the comments that I'm getting because uh, uh, the legal community uh, reads this. Um, and I've gotten some calls from, from a number of different places, D.C. and New York and some others. And their lawyers, most that I talk to are lawyers I have interaction with. And so uh, uh, if they're just, they don't know what to say. <laughs> like they don't know how to talk about the idea that, that there is maybe religion in life. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, Nathan, who wrote that, was stunned. Uh, I had driven him here. And that morning, I said to him, you know, Nathan is, is Jewish and, and from New York, and I said, so Nathan, have you ever been to a church before? And he said uh, kind of quietly, well, uh, no. And I said, oh. I said, it's pretty, I said, you know, we do animal sacrifices. <laughs> and he looked at me and I said, uh, you're not wearing socks, are you? And he said, why? And I said, I'm, I'm just making that up. I said, uh, I talked to John Devine's wife, Nubia, this morning. She also uh, uh, and I were talking about uh, how important it is to get out and vote. Voting is this Tuesday, and uh, uh, I urge everybody to do that. I will be quick to tell you that God is not a Republican or a Democrat. God is interested in people who will uh, discharge their duties uh, uh, well and in accordance with his will. Um, Joel Chernoff, next Sunday, as we finish the Minor Prophets, a little more housekeeping, um, uh, then we move into the Gospels. Joel has a ball coming here. He's already told me, I can write Gospel songs. And <laughs> he wants to come back when we're in the New Testament. I, I said, uh, no, nah, man, you're old news at that point. <laughs> No, I have not told him that yet, um, but I am toying with uh, Bob Bennett. Those of you who know Bob Bennett, maybe bringing him in for some gospel songs and, and some others uh, when we hit the book of Acts, if I could get the second chapter of Acts back together, but I probably can't. But um, uh, those of you who have uh, uh, an interest in contemporary Christian music, uh, stay tuned because hopefully as we hit the New Testament, we'll do more. Last housekeeping matter. Uh, next week, we will finish, uh, God willing, the um, Minor Prophets. Hold on, let's see. That needs to come off. That needs to go on. Philip, help me with life. <laughs> ah, we have, we have found it. How about that? Yeah. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> Didn't he bound up the stairs so well? Mark Craver's got lessons uh, uh, for those of you who would like to read along while I bellow um, or keep track of them. They're back there. Uh, just raise your hand and Mark will pass one out. The, um, uh, next week we do the last three minor prophets, God willing, and then we're going to have a week or two. Uh, I haven't figured out how I'm going to divide it up yet on the Apocrypha. And a number of you have said to me, be sure and say when we're going to hit the Apocrypha. So, um, okay, probably the 21st of uh, March, maybe the 28th of March, we may try and hit it on two 
uh, one of those is a spring break weekend and I've already had one person say, oh gee, can't you wait? You know, I've never heard the Apocrypha at church and I really want to be there. And so I can't wait. I'm going to go ahead and do it, but I'll, I'll try and stretch it into at least two Sundays so that we have a little bit of Apocrypha for everyone. There's enough to go around. Um, <clears throat> uh, last thing, um, we're so ahead of schedule. Damon uh, uh, did really good this morning. Man, he got a lot in in a short amount of time, so we're running pretty good. I had a chance to go with Dr. Bob to California last week and if you've never eaten in a restaurant with Dr. Bob, um, don't. Get Kelly and Veronica and take them to lunch. But Dr. Bob is fun. He's the only guy I've ever met who will go into a restaurant and the waiter will come up and say, um, have you decided what you want? And Dr. Bob will look at the waiter and say, I just imagine you're at the table. You just gotta be there. Uh, LA, fancy restaurant. Have you decided what you would like? Dr. Bob looks up and says, you got frog legs? <laughs> Waiter answers, yes, sir. Bob says, good. Then hop on back in the kitchen and get me a cheeseburger. <laughs> now, <laughs> Bob's daughter Veronica, daughters Veronica and Shannon said, you know those are the waiters who spit in your food. <laughs> I think they may be right, but uh, uh, anyway. With all of that as background, let's look at three minor prophets. Obadiah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now, why did I put these three together? They're related? Yeah, they're all Jewish. I put them together because of their time of authorship. It makes it easy to kind of study them together. Um, the late 600s BC, um, toward 605-ish for some of it, but 640 to 600 BC, maybe uh, uh, the early 500s BC. We don't really know when Obadiah was written. There's not anything that gives us good proof. So we're um, kind of making educated guesses based upon the material. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. Zephaniah, the first one we're going to look at today, writes that uh, his prophecy was occurring during the reign of Josiah. And we know Josiah's reign was 640 to 609 uh, B.C. So, so Zephaniah we're able to date. Habakkuk is dated at the raising up of the Babylonians, uh, uh, is what it says in Habakkuk, which probably puts it around the Battle of Carchemish around 605. That's when the Babylonians wiped out the Assyrians and the Egyptians uh, for good on the Assyrians and sent the Egyptians screaming back to Egypt. Um, so somewhere around 605, um, Obadiah is written when foreigners are entering Jerusalem and the nation of Edom is rejoicing at that. So that's probably 605 to 587 when the fall of Jerusalem took place. So somewhere within that general 50-year period, these three times of, of prophecy come out. Now, what was happening in this 50 years? How, what, let's, let's get this into a reference in our brains so that we know what was going on. Because here's our goal here. Our goal here as biblical literacy students is to understand what the Bible was saying at the time it was written, both in its culture and its environment and, and in its context. Let's understand the Bible within its context, and then let's apply it to our lives today. It's not a hard thing to do. 
But we don't ever want to be guilty of going and finding a passage in the Bible and removing it out of its context and of just applying it to our lives. That's a dangerous thing. That's where heresy comes in. That's where cults come in. Uh, that's where uh, uh, preachers are able to get on television and get old widows to send their last pennies in because they have taken some passage out of context and tried to cram it home with an entire theology built around it. Um, I, I don't like that. That's not good scholarship, and that's not uh, a good stewardship with the Bible. So let's understand this within the context of what Scripture tells us is happening, and then we can take it the next step and understand how it might uh, apply to our lives. Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, we had a civil war after King Solomon, and uh, the north split off from the south. The south was called Judah. The north was called either Israel or the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, it's long gone. It's been gone since 722 B.C. It's been gone over 50 years. Uh, generations have come and gone. Two generations have come and gone. So all that's left is the southern kingdom with the capital of, Ju of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah. And Judah is on its last legs. It's not going to be around much longer itself. We've just gone through King Manasseh who reigned for a long time. King Ammon, both of them evil and wicked kings who led the people astray, worshiping Baal, worshiping foreign gods, not honoring Yahweh, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who called Israel out of Egypt, the God who brought them through uh, the, the wilderness wanderings, the God who gave them the promised land, the God who anointed David king, the God who took care and nurtured them, the God who, who manifested His glory first in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple built by Solomon. That God was not being worshipped. Instead, Baal, the local cults, were being worshipped. And Israel was on its last legs because when you quit worshipping God, you quit caring about what God says in your life. And the things that God told the nation Israel to do, like the things God tells us to do, He didn't just put out there because He wanted structure in society. He put out there those things because that's holy and righteous living which causes us and the Jews to be the best we can be, to be the happiest, to be the most fulfilled, to build the most, to, to bring to our culture what we need to bring. It's good because it's best. And the people would have none of that. The people instead followed the pagan gods and the pagan cults of the day. And with that came the garbage and crud that comes when you worship garbage and crud. Josiah became king after Manasseh and Ammon. Josiah was Ammon's son. He was eight years old when he became king. He was a boy king. But he was a king who was being sculpted in the ways of Yahweh. And so he, Josiah, was a king that was trying to move the people back to God. But just because the leader moves one way or another does not mean all the people follow. And they didn't. Now, that's the, the domestic front. On the international front during this time period, you have world powers competing. To the immediate north of Judah, you've got Assyria, which has conquered Israel, which has been a dominant world force which came down and tried to take Judah with Hezekiah, but Hezekiah managed 
by the grace of God to withstand a, a siege and sent Sennacherib back north. So you've got, you've got Assyria immediately to the north, and then to the uh, east of Assyria, you've got Babylon, and Babylon is rising, and Assyria is diminishing, and Babylon conquers Nimrod and conquers Nineveh, and Babylon is starting to take over the Assyrian Empire. Egypt, to the south of Judah, comes up to try and help Assyria stave off Babylon. So you got big international crisis going on. And uh, that uh, uh, it was a trouble for the courts and the people because they didn't know which side to take. You take the wrong side, you get wiped out. You take the right side, you get rewarded. Isaiah is over there telling the kings, <clears throat> Babylon wins. Jeremiah later, contemporary with these guys, is telling them, Babylon wins. But the kings don't always listen to the voice of God and don't always make the right choices. So internationally, this is going on. And in the midst of this, we have these three prophets. Now, who were they? Well, let's start with Zephaniah. Zephaniah was King Hezekiah. That was the good king that, that uh, um, uh, withstood the, the siege of Sennacherib and, and withstood a serious siege, though he did pay tribute. King Hezekiah, a good godly king, his great-great-grandson is Zephaniah. Not close enough to be a king, but definitely someone of social standing. Definitely someone of, uh, of account and of record. Um, this is someone who would have been familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah being sort of the court prophet of his great-great-granddad, Hezekiah. This is someone who would have been familiar with the prophecies of Amos. We know it not just because of who Zephaniah was as a relative and as someone in social order, but if you read the prophecies of Zephaniah, you'll see Zephaniah referencing language of Amos and Isaiah, which tells you also that he was familiar, he being Zephaniah, with Amos and Isaiah. Um, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, a contemporary of Jeremiah, prophesying about the same time. We know by reading his prophecies that he was well-rooted in religious traditions. He'd been to Sunday school, which they didn't have on Sunday because they were Jewish. He'd been to Sabbat school, yeah, Sabbath school. He'd, uh, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd paid attention, and he's well-rooted in the religious traditions. He was not a Baal worshiper. He, was, he, he knew Yahweh, and, and that's where he, he worshiped. Obadiah, don't have a clue who he was. There are at least 12 Obadiahs talked about in the Old Testament. I don't think any of them are the Obadiah, the prophet, who gave these words. Um, I can tell you that his name breaks down from two Hebrew words. Uh, Yah is short for Yahweh, which is God. And Obed comes from the, Greek, or the Hebrew word of a, a servant. And so uh, uh, Evid Yahweh is... is uh, the, the words put together for Obadiah. And um, so his name means servant of God. We don't know much else about him. Now, having said that, let's look at the first book, Zephaniah. Zephaniah complains about certain sins of the Israelis, of the Jewish people, of the Judahites. And here's what's happening here. Zephaniah comes out as a prophet and says, in the middle of the turmoil going on internationally... 
you Judah, you people have some sins that are going to cause God to visit judgment on you. This is um, um, a, 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 a warning. This is a, a, a word to the wise. This is the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. Here are some problems in your life. Problem number one, you've got an idolatry problem. You're worshiping Baal. You're worshiping the wrong God. As, as Damon talked about this morning, there's only room in your heart to worship one God. Don't fool yourselves into thinking you can worship multiple gods. If God is God, worship God. If money is your God, worship money. If power is your God, worship power. If prestige is your God, worship prestige. But you choose what you're going to worship and that you worship. Now, what does worship mean? We've broken it apart, but let's do it again. Worship means, um, comes from two uh, Anglo-Saxon words, our word worship. The first being worth, and the second, skiape, we get the word ascribe. Ascribe worth. That's what you do when you worship. When you worship something, you ascribe worth to it. You say, God, I'll worship you because you alone have worth. Or you alone are worthy. See, same word. We worship God because he is worth thee. Right? That's why we ascribe worth or worship to God because only he has worth. So you want to worship God, you want to say that God has worth, then you live for God. You make God what you want to please. You make God who you want to rule your life. You make God your focus. You make God what you seek after. You make God your purpose in life. If you'd rather say, God doesn't have enough worth for me to pursue God, I would rather pursue money because money has greater worth. It is more worthy of my worship. I will ascribe greater worth to having money in the bank or property, or I'll ascribe more worth to having fun, or I'll ascribe more worth to being powerful or popular. You see, you pick what you want to worship. I pick what I want to worship. And the reason this is important is because we tend to become like those things we worship. And the people were not worshiping the Lord like they should have. It was a sin of idolatry. There was a second sin that the people were committing. They were ignoring God. Let's look at that. The people were ignoring God. Zephaniah writes in 1.7, those who turn back from Yahweh and neither seek Yahweh nor inquire of Him. They just ignore Him. They don't look to God. They don't ask God for help. They don't seek God. God's not what is about their day. When they wake up on Sunday, they may go to church because they're supposed to or they want their kids to go. But they're not seeking God. When they go to work on Monday, or they go about their chores on Monday, whatever it may be, they're not looking for God. They're not asking God for help. 
in the mundane, everyday things, these are people who, don't get me wrong, if they've got cancer, they may seek God. If they've got a serious problem, they may inquire after God, but in the everyday, they ignored Him. Eh. Yeah, I'll think about Him again next Sunday. Maybe I'll say a prayer before a meal if we're all together as a family. But if it's me alone, eh, God knows my heart. Or maybe they don't even think about God knowing their heart. Now, how do you make decisions? How do I make decisions? This is a good test for us. Are we ignoring God? Well, you've got a decision to make. Do you seek God? Do you inquire of Him? Do you try to find out? Now, where does God land on this? And some people say, and I've been guilty of this, um, I would seek him, but he never answers. Okay. The last time I asked him something, I waited, I waited, I waited. And I'm reminded of Sarah when she was three years old. Wanted to know something. She's standing buck naked in the bathroom. Just got out of the bathtub. Nothing on but the TV. And she looks up, proudly putting her hands out, and asks God a question. And then proceeds to cross her arms and stand there and wait for an answer. And does not understand why, if he's all we've told her he is, he's not answering. Can he really hear? Can he really talk? Does he really know? Then why isn't he telling her? Tough to explain that to a three-year-old, because it's tough to explain that to a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old. But God has answers. Emmett Fox would tell you, don't look for God to come on the outside and bang the answer in, because God wants to take you from the inside and teach you how to find the answer. Don't expect God to bring his miracles from the outside and bash you over the head with them. The biggest miracle he can work is one from inside your own heart. And that's where he seeks to do the greatest good. Mom said after dad died, she learned better about prayer. She was praying for dad to be totally healed from his stroke. And she said God honored the prayer. She says, I kind of wish I'd prayed for him to just get halfway healed. He'd still be here. You know, we've got to see that there is a place for God. And God will answer when you inquire of him. Sometimes his answer is this, you pick. I've had him, I've prayed, God, I've got to go A or B. Which one should it be? And God will say, do you really, are you really willing to do either one? Yes, God, I'll do either one. You just make it clear. And sometimes his answer is, okay, A. And I can tell it's A. He shuts doors. Or sometimes his answer is B. And I can tell it's B. He shuts doors. Sometimes his answer is, you pick. I'll bless you either way. But we have the assurance out of Proverbs 3, if we acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, He'll make our path straight. He will fix it. So we need to inquire of the Lord, not ignore Him. A third sin that's talked about in Zephaniah is the sin of complacency. God says, I will punish those who are complacent, who think Yahweh will do nothing, either good or bad. This is one, if, if I ever could get the courage to teach a high school class... And I'm not sure I could. Um, I admire the Mike Cherries and other of the world who are able to do that. Um, I, I, I can't. But if I could, this is the kind of class I would want to teach off of. Complacency. 
There are, high school kids are rampant with this in their brain, but so are adults. It's okay to ignore God because he ain't going to do anything. You know, I got this deal with God. I don't mess with you, you don't mess with me. No, God says that deal doesn't cut, especially if you claim to be his child. That doesn't cut with God any more than it cuts with me if one of my daughters who's a teenager comes in to me and says, Hey, Dad, I got a new idea. I won't get into your business of what you do if you don't get into my business of what I do. <laughs> that will fly about like a hundred pound rock. It ain't going anywhere. All right? I'm in her business of what she does. That's because she's my teenage daughter. Uh, Lewis cleans his guns when guys come over to take out his daughter. <laughs> He's talking to Bob or someone else who said, yeah, he said, uh, I don't remember who it was. Someone said, yeah, when the guy came over to ask for my daughter, wanted not ask for her in marriage. <laughs> my daughters aren't getting married. Guy came over, <laughs> to, well, as God raises up something brand new I've never seen. Um, <laughs> guy comes over, wants to date his daughter. He's not only cleaning his guns, he says, hey, look at this. You know what this is? The guy says, uh, it's a bullet. He says, oh, this isn't just a bullet. Look real close. It's got your name on it. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, complacency? God, oh, he's not going to do anything. I'll do my stuff. He does his stuff. We meet once in a while and get things ironed out. <laughs> Doesn't fly. Do you expect God to act in your life? Ask yourself that question. Do you honestly expect God to act in your life? Because He is and He will. God will act in your life. Not always the way we want Him to. But He acts in our lives. Period. And we should not be so complacent and so ignorant and so deluded and so beguiled by the evil one that we ever think otherwise. Zephaniah, ignoring God, complacency, Zephaniah says it's going to bring the judgment of God down. And that judgment's going to be distress, and it's going to be anguish, it's going to be gloom and ruin. And these are Zephaniah's words. You ignore God, you are asking for trouble. You get complacent about God, you are asking for distress. Because God is trying to drive you to your knees to understand who He is and to get your life in order, and to quit ignoring it. You want shelter? Then Zephaniah says, seek God in humility. With humility, look for God. Quit ignoring Him. Don't be complacent. And, and do what God says. I mean, if you really got, want to know what does God want you to do, 90% of what He wants you to do, you can get it by reading this book. 90% of the decisions. Let's see, should I lie or tell the truth? God, which would you like me to do? He's not answering. Oh yeah, he's, he said that so many times, you know the answer. So many times we go to God and we know the answer because His Spirit's in our heart. But 90% of the time, it's right here. He does answer. He has answered pretty resoundingly loud. The other 10% of the time, you, you, you try to struggle to understand where He wants you to be. But there's something that's even being learned in the struggle. 
See, he's transforming our minds. He's teaching us how to think. He's teaching us how to, to, to follow him. Um, Zephaniah says the kingdom is coming when the lips of the people will be purified to call in the name of Yahweh. This is a man who is familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, which is what I teached about that was in the article on the American lawyer. Isaiah has a vision of God. He falls down flat on his face and says, Woe unto me, I am unworthy. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. God commands an angel to fly to the altar, take a coal from the altar, and come touch Isaiah's lips to purify him. The altar being Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, which brings purification to us. Um, that's something that Zephaniah was familiar with. And Zephaniah says, there is going to come a day, we know it as the day of Jesus Christ, when the lips of the people will be purified and we can call on the name of Yahweh. What Zephaniah tells us is, there is a God who will listen to you when you cry out to Him. And if you don't cry out to Him and you don't seek Him out and you don't acknowledge Him, He will bring you to a point where you will. Hopefully. The meek and the humble who trust in the name of Yahweh. He will rescue the lame. He'll gather those who've been scattered. Next. New subject. Habakkuk. When I was in school and we had to memorize these minor prophets and what they said, the way we memorized this was Habakkuk talk Habakkuk. It was just, all right, I'm sorry. It's a freebie. Just stick in the back of your brain. Habakkuk talked Habakkuk. He kind of talked back to, talks back to God, sort of, in a polite, deferential way, recognizing it is God. Um, but uh, that's the way we remembered that book. Um, you know how we remembered the Hebrew word for he stole? Makar. <laughs> he stole Makar. <laughs> Makar. See, we came up with all of these. The word who in Hebrew means he. The word he in Hebrew means she. The word dog in Hebrew means fish. So we had who is he, he is she, and the dog's a fish. Um, but Habakkuk talked Habakkuk. Well, this is the things you learn in this class. I had one person telling me, I went to see the Passion, I understood half of it because of what you've said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not in this life. Uh, uh, no, Habakkuk. Habakkuk is different than the others because it's not an oracle in the sense of here's the word of the Lord, boom. Habakkuk is a dialogue, almost kind of like Job. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And they talk back and forth. And Habakkuk, we see legitimate questions being asked of God with legitimate answers. God is not afraid of any question you have. One of my precious children came to me and she said, I feel guilty. I said, what'd you do? <laughs> she said, well, I've got just real serious questions about God and I feel guilty that I'm asking him. Like, if God is so good, why did Jesus have to go through all of that stuff? I said, why do you feel guilty asking that? And she said, because I shouldn't be asking God questions like that. I said, oh, yes, you should. If you have that question, you ask it. She said, does that mean I'm weak in faith? I said, oh, no. I said, God's not afraid of any of your questions. And if you can't come up with an answer, you keep searching and you find godly people and you ask him. And you study your Bible and you pray for insight from the Holy Spirit. You don't ever want your questions answered by Satan. You want them answered by God. So you ask God those questions. And you get holy people who, who have wisdom to help you answer those questions. 
I would love to talk to you about these questions. These are questions I have in life. These are questions I've asked. How do I know God's really there? How do I know this whole thing's not just made up? How do I know that when you die, it's not just the candle being snuffed out? Where can I find faith and confidence in that? How do I know that any of this stuff's reliable? How do I know that God in here is any different than the God that's revealed in, in other world religions? How do I know these things? Those are legitimate questions. Don't ever think God frowns or runs from your questions. He does not. Our son is at Cornell. He's taken a freshman uh, year there, and his, uh, one of his classes right now is archaeology and the Bible. This is not a Christian school. His professor assigned for him a paper this semester. It is to um, explain the inconsistencies between the Bible and the archaeological record on Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. Um, and Will, whom I adore, is just a great kid. He calls me on the phone. He tells me about it. I said, yeah. I said, that's a great paper to write. And he says, yeah. He says, there are three different views. And I said, well, tell me what they are. Of course, I'm, I'm, this is my area, you know. <laughs> Understand, I, I view this as my area. Law is a hobby, okay? <laughs> this is what I, I, I so he, uh, he, said, uh, he said, well, one view discounts the um, Assyrian record and emphasizes the Bible is right. A second view discounts the Bible and says the Assyrian annals should be given greater authority. And then a third tries real hard to force the two into a consistency so that both of them are correct. I said, ah, so what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to write on all three. He said, I don't think I have to take a, a stand on it. If I've got to take a stand, I haven't figured out how I'm going to do it yet. And I said, have you started researching? He said, yeah. I said, you know, I've got probably 15 or 20 good standard authorities that have all of the viewpoints. I've got the ones from each one. Would you like me to have those pages Xeroxed and sent to you so you can do some of this in your room and don't have to do all of it in the library? Of course, my ulterior motive is then I'm plugged in and I get to talk to him about it each step of the way. <laughs> he says, man, that'd be great. I get him Xeroxed. We get him shipped off to him and he comes back to me with it and, and uh, we start talking and we're having a ball talking. And what I love with Will is he sees that I'm not, my faith is not threatened in the least by a true intellectual examination of these things. Because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that I've committed to him. That includes my son. That includes my intellectual honesty. I don't have a God of irrationality that doesn't make sense. I may not always understand him. Habakkuk doesn't always get all of the answers he wants, and that's where faith kicks in. But the honest examination of God is not anything to be fearful of. Um, faith <coughs> supplements the answers to the questions, but the questions are fair to ask, and that's not a bad thing. Here's the dialogue that Habakkuk has. It starts in the upper left. 
God, it's, there's violence, there's injustice, and the wicked are beating the righteous. That's unfair. And God says, oh yeah, you think it's bad now? The Babylonians are coming. <laughs> it's going to get worse. And Habakkuk says, he says, well, this is just even more unfair. It's bad enough that here in Judah, the wicked are reigning over the righteous. Now you're bringing a bunch of wicked pagans in to, to, to defeat all of us. And God says, yeah, well, the Babylonians are going to get it too. They're not going to be the have-all, end-all. Wickedness gets destroyed. God can bring a wicked country in to take care of a wicked country. The wicked country's not going to last forever either. But there's solace, Habakkuk, in all of this. The solace is that the righteous are going to live by his faith, not by who's in charge of the world. The solace, Habakkuk, is that Yahweh is in his holy temple and let all the earth keep silence before him. God is in control. We do our very best. I remember 35 years ago, my preacher standing up and saying at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, and, and my history has borne out the truth of what he said. He said, you pray to God as if everything depends upon God and nothing else. But then you act as if God is depending totally upon you to take care of the problem. And that can be taken wrong, but it can be taken right. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you do your best to do everything God wants, but at the same token, you pray as if it's all going to totally be from God, and then at that point you sit back and know that God takes care of the consequences. It may not be the result you want, but you can have faith that it's the result that's best. And God, at the end of the book, Habakkuk's book, makes his feet like the feet of a deer and makes him walk on the high places. If you ever read the book, Hind's Feet on High Places, it uh, is taken from that verse. New subject, Obadiah. Anybody in here in Bible study fellowship? If you are, raise your hand. One, two, buckle my shoe. Three, four, four of you. Okay. This is for you. Did y'all go to Obadiah in the last week or two? Okay. Um, I try real hard to put something in here for everybody, and Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just real short. It's one chapter. And so I thought, okay, people have just spent, who are in Bible study fellowship, have just studied Obadiah. There's only so much you can get out of that book. I've got uh, nine minutes to finish this. What can I throw in so that they'll feel like, ah, I got something new? So... This has uh, got a little bit of extra that goes beyond typical biblical literacy for those of you who are in Bible study fellowship. First, let's understand Obadiah. We've got to have a little Bible recap here from Genesis. Abraham, you remember him? Okay. He has a son, Isaac. If you don't remember this from Genesis, Bob, you weren't in here for Genesis, but you'd remember it off the Bob Dylan song. God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no, you know, Highway 51. Um, <laughs> Abraham has a son named Isaac that he was supposed to kill. Doesn't wind up killing him. It's a prophecy about God offering his son instead. Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau. And from these boys is going to come the blessings of all mankind, the Messiah. 
From which? It's going to be from Jacob. What about his brother Esau? His brother's still going to get blessed and be a big nation. Esau is the older of these two twins. Esau sells his birthright for some food. Sells it to Jacob. Comes back. He's starving. Jacob says, man, you're making some stew, some red bean soup. I'd like some. Jacob says, well, what you got to give me for it? I don't have anything. I'll take your birthright. Okay, I'm going to die anyway. Might as well give you my birthright. I'm starving to death. Trades his birthright in for some stew, red bean soup. It wasn't even like fajitas or anything good. <laughs> Y'all remember that story? Okay. Esau, his family becomes Edom. Hebrew word for red comes from that because it was red bean soup he traded off for. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And Jacob has the Israelites, the Jews. Okay? Esau, Edom, and Israel have constantly fought. Um, if you look at it geographically, the Edomites are a little bit south of the Dead Sea, a little bit south in some mountainous terrain. That's where they settle in. And the Jews have to go through there to get to the Promised Land. And King David and Solomon, they're constantly doing border fights with the Edomites, who are supposedly their long-lost relatives. And generally, the Jews are victorious and have the Edomites under control, but not always. There's constant fighting. Now, why do we talk about this with Obadiah? Obadiah is written at a time where Judah has suffered loss. Jerusalem has been invaded. I believe it's around the time that the Babylonians are invading Jerusalem. And when Judah gets destroyed and invaded, the Edomites start jumping up and down, cackling. Ha, 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 ha. You got what's coming to you. And nanner, nanner. And all of this. And, and understand what had happened to the Jews was horrendous. And the Edomites gloated. And the Edomites said, well, it looks like someone got theirs, but we're okay. Nobody can touch us because the Edomites did not get invaded by the Babylonians. So the Edomites are pompously rubbing the Jews' nose in it and gloating over it. And Obadiah makes this prophecy against the Edomites. He says, oh, you may not have gotten it yet, but you're going to be absolutely destroyed. The Jews will get restored. They're getting burned, but you're going to be stubble. Man, you're gone. You're out of here. Edom will ultimately be destroyed. And the reason why is because of your pride. Your haughtiness, your pride, you think you're something special. Edom dwelled in caves and in rocks in an area that's now contemporary Jordan. Um, uh, we're about a hundred years probably before the construction of one of the most famous sites in the Holy Land, but in the area of Edom. Um, and I have a picture of it somewhere, and I'd rather put it here. Okay, hold on. Yeah, Petra. This is Edom. Carved into the rock. If you were standing where that person is in this picture, looking out, you look at this cleft in the rock here, and, and there are caves all in these rocks and towns that they had built that made them almost... You, you, Indiana Jones 3, remember? That's, they filmed it here, okay? Um, or part of it. That's, that's a, a, a famous landmark of Petra. And, and these are the Edomites. 
Actually, that landmark was built about 100 years after they got invaded. But uh, uh, they lived in those. They lived in their own dwellings in those cliffs. And, and that's what Obadiah says here. He says, you've got a sin of pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. See, the Edomites were saying, look where we live. Nobody's invading us. And we're secure. We're up high in these rocks and mountains and nobody's messing with us. And their pride was their sin. Now, let's talk about pride for a minute. There's a pun that Obadiah has here. This was the freebie for people who were in BSF. The pun is, Zadon is the Hebrew word for pride. And the, the, the consonants, the root part of that word Zadon is uh, used in other Hebrew words. In the verb form, it means to boil over, to, to, to foam or to seethe. Like you got a pot and it's bubbling and it's boiling over, right? It does it with macaroni and cheese. If you make macaroni and cheese and you turn it too high, you know how the bubbles just start, okay? That's the same word, same consonants, same root. Because what pride is, is, is just, you know, we would say you're too big for your britches, but they would say you're too big for your pot. You know, you're boiling over. You think so much more of you than you are. You're all puffed up. Well, it's interesting because it is this boiling over puffed upness of Edom that is the cause of their downfall. There is a pun here. The reason it's a play on words is because while pride comes from the root of boiling over, meaning you're too big or self-exalted, this same root is used three times in the Genesis story when Edom comes to Jacob and says, please give me food, and he sells his birthright. The food was boiling over. The soup was bubbling over. It's the, the key word that's used over and over and over again to describe Edom selling his birthright to get some food that had boiled over, the bean stew. Now here's the irony. The nation, Edom, that got its start selling its birthright for something that boils over becomes the nation that will get its end, that will be finished, that will be destroyed because its very character has boiled over in pride. Points for home. Number one, don't ignore God. Don't ignore God. You got decisions to make, seek Him out. Don't ignore God. Expect God in your life. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter how much you've messed up. Doesn't matter where you've gone astray. Doesn't matter if you're on plan triple Z because you have missed God's plans A through Z, double A through double Z, and triple A through triple Y. And you're on triple Z. Doesn't matter. Right now, where you are today, expect God to start working in your life. And He changes who you are, little by little, day by day. And He makes you what you need to be. Arrogance has no place before God. No place before God. None. Absolutely no place before God. 
one of the things that's most important to me as a lawyer in my job is that I learn how to do it better tomorrow than I did it today. I have not arrived in any aspect of my life. And the day I think I have nothing else to learn in any aspect of my life is the day I've become a fool. Arrogance in any aspect of our life has no place. I could be a much better Sunday school teacher, and I want to learn how to be. Bob sent me an email a couple weeks ago and said, have you thought about doing this in your Sunday school class? I think it might be a kick up. And he was right, which, by the way, I didn't do it this week. Uh, <laughs> Arrogance has no place before God. Humility is what we need. Let's opt for humility instead. Yeah, I can do better, and I'll try to do better. I want to learn more. I want, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better son of God. I want to be a peacemaker. And blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. Of course, as a lawyer, sometimes I think the best way to be a peacemaker is just to beat the crud out of someone so they say, I give, and then we have peace. <laughs> You've got to struggle through these things to understand them, right? President Bush thinks the best way to be a peacemaker is to go to war. You know, it's not always an easy answer, but you try to struggle and you try to understand what God wants from you. And, and humility. Hold on to Jesus because in him we have God, the ultimate justice. And whatever you're going through in your life, the good and the bad, the health and the unhealth, if you hold on to Jesus, the end is what it needs to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much. I hear the little babies cry, and I think about how from the very beginning, we're trying to struggle to understand where we need to be in this world. And Lord, it is my prayer that you'll take all of us, young and old alike, and awaken our hearts and our spirits to see you, to seek you out, to put you first and to worship you, to find you as the one we uh, adore. Will you strip down other things we idolize, the idols in our life, other things we worship, strip them away and create in us clean, pure desires for you. Lord, take, as my prayer, you would take everybody in here today exactly where they are and have them commit their hearts to you right now to try and walk with you as their focus point. Lord, bring us back together frequently. Next week, I pray, so we help encourage each other to renew that focus and renew that vision on you because it's so easy to get distracted little by little during the week. But draw our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, and reveal yourself to us in your will in our lives in brand new, fresh ways that encourage and uplift us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.